Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring the greater mysteries of faith, life and meaning. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined by Sue Wilton. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Sue. Hi, Dom. Always good to be back. And uh, we have two uh, amazing guests on the podcast today. Firstly, Professor William Frankie, uh, Professor of Comparative Literature and Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University. Thanks so much, William, for joining us. My pleasure. And uh, Professor Kevin Hart, a professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia, as well as an incredible poet and philosopher. Thank you so much, Kevin, for your time. Good to be here. Now, I, I have been joking with some friends of mine this week that uh, the I guess the esteem of the two of you, I could probably go and make a coffee and just let you talk, I reckon, for, <laughs> for a good hour or so and come back in and we'd have an amazing podcast because it seems as though your work is um, profound uh, almost as a constant from my reading of it this week. So I'm really looking forward to this one. And today we are going to be talking about how we articulate God, how we can speak about um, seemingly the unspeakable, um, which uh, is a lot of what both of your work is, is focused on. It is something obviously beyond the capabilities of the human mind to grasp this, this, this notion, intellectually understand what the divine is or, or the fullness of the divine. It is somewhat beyond us. Um, yet, nevertheless, we try um, and have tried for you know, as long as we've been alive. Why, why do you think we, we persist with, with it when it is impossible to do? Okay, I think there's a very straightforward reason. In the Judeo-Christian story, God is the creator and God is absolutely singular. That's to say there is no genus of divinity in the Judeo-Christian story. There is God who is the only God. From, it's very clear from Torah on. Um, now, if that's the case, if God is absolutely singular, there can be no concept of God. To have a concept, you must have at least two things in it. And here you have something which is absolutely singular. So if we can't have a concept of God, then God was going to be mysterious from the very beginning. There's another dimension to this, which I, I can't imagine you would disagree with, William, and, and it's simply this. Given that we cannot approach God through knowledge, God is not an item in the cosmos, not a phenomenon in the cosmos that we can know in the usual way we know things. When we approach God, we approach him through unknowing. We have to reduce our, our, our sense of, of what we can know of God. We don't approach him through knowledge so much as love, through the darkness of unknowing in love. And then God will come close to us when he's no longer regarded as an item in the cosmos, but something above the cosmos, less to do with knowledge than to do with love. Yeah, I actually think that's a um, lovely way to, to go into this kind of thinking about thinking about what cannot be named or spoken about, because we, we as human beings love to pin things down as the metaphor we used or nail things down you know and I always think it's an interesting metaphor to use with respect to Christian religion because we have a Christ who was literally nailed to a cross you know it's like that human attempt to nail down God you know that to nail down say what is certain and yet that defied that nailing down that Christ actually mm. rose and and was recreated and, and there was the resurrection and so even this human very human attempt to nail down God 
failed. And and so if we think about that in the way we try in our own mind to to nail down God, mm. to say this is what we know, um, instead of being allowed to be invited into a relationship of love that is about motion, not about something static, not about something that can be completely defined, but instead being invited into that loving relationship is, uh, you know, it's just an, an interesting way to, to contrast our habits of the mind, our habits of wanting to objectify and, right. and hang on to things. If, if we go back again to what we know Jesus did, there's a lot we don't know about Jesus. But one thing we know is that for his one, two, or three years in public ministry, he told parables and he preached. And when he talked about God, it was always in terms of father. That's to say it was relational from the very beginning. Everyone has a father. You may not know your father, you may not like your father, but you are always and already in a relationship with your father by very fact that you're alive and what Jesus was perpetually doing it seems to me is saying there is a relationship there that you can ignore or you can formalize it or you can deepen it and of course he was commending that we deepen it mm -hmm. not just on a one-to-one -one basis but as the whole life of Israel is to be played out communally in the relationship with God so yes, very much so. It's relationship, and relationship is to do with one or another mode of love. You know, friendship, philia, storge, family, love, eros, erotic love, and as Jesus kept emphasizing, agape, self-sacrificial love. What struck me in the, the very striking comparison that Sue brought up just a moment ago about nailing down God and failing to nail down a God who is resurrected is the way in which that, that nailing down is necessary to the, right, you know, to, to the resurrection, to the symbol that is created. It's not as if we could avoid nailing down, avoid the objectification that language intrinsically is, and even especially poetic language. The first attempt to, as we say, nail down uh, belief about Christ occurs in one of Paul's letters, the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. If you look in chapter 15, I think it's verses 3 to 6, we find the oldest Christian creed, which is about Jesus being raised from the dead. And there's not much doubt among biblical critics, I think, that that creed was in circulation three to five years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I find this astounding because if you think, for example, of the death of Julius Caesar, the first textual evidence we have of the death of Julius Caesar comes between 150 and 200 years after the event in Plutarch and Suetonius. We only know we can date the death of Julius Caesar, not through text, but because of the minting of a coin in the Second Triumvirate. But in Christianity, the early Christians didn't mint coins. They minted creeds. And the first creed comes astonishingly three to five years after the death of Jesus, witnessing to the experience of resurrection. Now, if you're going to start trying to define what's going on in Christianity, it's going to be the resurrection 
of Jesus, which is going to be the starting point, it seems to me. That was the belief of the earliest Christians. So it's the, the direct experience, really, of this person, mm -hmm. Jesus, that is, is really crucial at the, the formative stages of the, the, the Christian religion. And that becomes then a model for experiencing God. The transmission from the, the undescribable, unnameable space that was named God was really focused on a, a, a particular person and an immediate impression that was then conveyed in, uh, in, in the form of a creed and given poetic expression. The creed is part of a hymn. And this is really where Kevin's experience as a theologian and a critical philosopher come poet is exemplary for us. We really need both mm -hmm. because the, the, the negative moment leaves one speechless ultimately and there has to be something else to be able to step into the gap and give it some kind of articulation and this is the the poetic motion. Yes, I think that's true. There's, there's two things I, I'd throw in there. One is that for the earliest Christians, who, who of course were, were Jewish for the most part, the big problem was how to reconcile the monotheistic belief, so central to Judaism, with the relationship between the Father and Jesus, who was being regarded as the Son. Now, the expression Son of God, which you find in the New Testament and in the Hebrew Bible, is applied to kings, judges, angels, Adam, it's a, it's a general term. It, it's not, it doesn't mean God's son. That's a later Christian notion in the development of the, the doctrine of the Trinity. It took Paul, I think, a long time to find any kind of understanding as to the relationship between Jesus of Nazareth and Yahweh. And in fact, I think it took the Christian community a very, very long time, you know, possibly up to the middle of the fifth century, to come up with a clear understanding about the relationship of Jesus of Nazareth and God. Now, that's the first thing. The other thing about, as William is saying about the, the language, the word that was used for the creeds uh, in, among the first Christians was not creed. It was symbol, symbolon, the Greek, the Greek yes. word. Yes which means um, it's a kind of, a, a symbolon was a, a piece of pottery that was broken in half and eventually joined back together when, when, a, when a deal was done. So what you get in the, the creed is an attempt to articulate wholeness. The wholeness of your relationship between yourself and God mediated through Christ, the wholeness of the early Christian community. And that, in a sense, is a figure of what happens in the writing and reading of poems, yeah. that we seek some kind of wholeness. And in many ways, salvation is regarded as a particular attempt at finding wholeness or complete health, spiritual health. Yes. I guess it is a challenge when you, I mean, you spoke, Kevin, about God not being an item in the cosmos, um, yet uh, as, as we grow up, as we, you know, um, become adults or, you know, even young adults, you, 
you learn to love other, I guess, items, other things you can see, people you see, people you know, and then you're asked to know, love, be in relationship with something that is entirely not that, but also entirely integrated in that. But that is, I guess, intellectually, that is, that is, I remember being a, a kid in a youth group in a church and everyone talking about loving God and not knowing what they meant by that. Mm-hmm. What, what, who are you loving? What are you loving? Right. That, that, I think that language can be a real struggle for people. I, I think it is, and I think this, you put your finger on an immense pastoral problem because people talk themselves into feelings of love and often intense love of God, which they don't actually feel. Um, now, the Aquinas says right at the beginning of the Summa that he will take the man Jesus as his path to God. And what he has in mind by that, I think, is that we can only love God in the Christian tradition, in and through the Christ, by following the human life of Jesus, his ordinary family life, and increasingly the events that lead to his passion and resurrection. If you don't meditate upon those things, you will not love God. You cannot love God if he is regarded as distant, difficult, an abstraction. You will force yourself to think that you do, but you can't. The Christian life requires an enormous amount of time to grow into the kind of love that God asks of us. And there's no way other than following the images of Jesus that it avails. And I, I think, too, that when you're talking about meditating on the life and, and the teaching and the miracles of Jesus, it's, it's about that happening in the present moment for me in my life now. So in, for me, you know, the, an encounter with Christ is an event of forgiveness, Really, you know that that is how, when we think about loving God, for me, you know, I, it's it, this is a something that occurs. It's an occurrence of forgiveness in my life that opens me up um, to living in a new way, and and in, then into following. I think right. I, I, primacy for me is is the um, is that event of forgiveness first. Jesus right. for me, Christ for me. S- certainly, although I think one has to be very careful. Again, this is a pastoral problem, not to think that the encounter with Christ, the the encounter of forgiveness, as you say, leads always to feelings. Mm -hmm. Often people going to church, into the Eucharist, or praying, feel nothing Mm -hmm. and feel guilty as though they've failed. And I think in our culture, William will know this as as well as anyone, that particularly in the Protestant culture, which is... uh, passed over into the the Catholic culture by now, especially in the United States, we're all Schleiermachians. That's to say, Mm -hmm. we think in terms of feeling. Mm -hmm. Religion is to do with Mm -hmm. experience, Mm -hmm. and experience is centered upon feeling. I think this is exactly the wrong way to regard religion. It's not that we don't have feelings, and they're not important to us, it's just that it is not the center of our relationship. You don't get when you receive Holy Communion usually a feeling of holiness. Mm -hmm. And when people run up against that blank, this is often, I think, 
closer to a genuine encounter with God than some kind of pious twaddle. Mm-hmm. I think it's that moment when you throw up your hands and say, I can't do this, I've failed in some way, I cannot, right. I have felt nothing, I've encountered nothing, and something in that, in that moment, I agree, there's, right. there's, a, there's that, that I'm not, it's not what I'm bringing and I don't have it. We, we have to be able to feel beyond our feelings and to also mm-hmm. to think beyond them rather than to be enclosed within mm-hmm. the that's feeling that's and taking that to be the real thing. The feeling is intentional, that mm-hmm. is, it is directed towards yes. a, another. And even now, the feelings towards Jesus Mm -hmm. and the experience, the relationship of Jesus, we have to at the same time remember that that relationship to Jesus remains itself a mystery. Or to a person, when you say, look, I, I know what it is to love someone in particular in my life, but you also don't know what that is. There's this other dimension of unknowing, which is always intrinsic to your knowing and your experience of loving, if it's love, it is also really opening upon an unknown, a vast unknown in yourself in relation to this unknown of the other. You cannot really know, uh, except very partially who it is that you're loving. That's why we then retain the language of of God. I think many of the uh, religion debates that we see occur between people of faith and people not of faith, and I'm hesitant to use the faith word in, in this context, but boils down to some who intellectually agree with the idea there is a greater being or greater purpose, and some who intellectually disagree with that idea. And the whole conversation takes place as to, I guess, who's gritting their teeth and thinking the hardest um, about this. But, but I guess what you're saying here is this: this actually, the, at the root of this, it, it cannot, it cannot exist in that format. It cannot exist in in on that level. In a way, it's maybe illusory. The you know those that believe that there is a greater purpose and those that don't. You're, you're I. I can see how very often the God question plays out in those terms. But it doesn't really have to be that way, such a divide. Whether you attribute some, quote, greater purpose to your existence or not is, is not really the, the core of that existence itself. It's there, however you're going to answer that question, on either side of that divide, you exist. And you don't grasp fully that purpose. You might, you don't grasp that existence. Um, And to start with that, it's the, the openness of the purpose of existence, rather than either, you know, saying, I know it has a higher purpose, or I know that it doesn't, let it be what it is. And as such, it is infinitely open and inexhaustible. And that is the dimension in which the language of God has a certain kind of a sense. Kevin, a a quote of yours, which I've written down, I quite loved, was um, you said, uh, one of the things which perpetually amazes me is that at any moment of any day, anyone who is alive can talk with the creator of the cosmos but then when we try to reflect on it, when we try to do theology, it's almost impossible. How can you think about God, who is absolutely singular, 
who is transcendent, who escapes all of our mode of thought. As soon as we try to write the simplest sentence about God, we find ourselves in endless perplexities. But when we stop trying to write about God and talk with God, God is there and we can talk with God. This paradox, it seems to me, is at the heart of the Christian life and not just the Christian life, the religious life. And it's something we can never overcome. This idea that we, we are constantly having experiences and then bringing them to the mind to, to decode, to work with, and finding ourselves unable to mm-hmm. and often endlessly frustrated, mm-hmm. yet we continue to repeat the pattern, experience to the mind, right. experience right. to the mind. This is something we, we, we all know at some level. Anyone can teach a little child how to pray to God. Any, any parent who's a believer does this. And it's very simple. You just start talking to God. And um, as soon as, however, you start to articulate what God, who God is, it's very different. So as a theologian, I'm not just concerned with prayer. Evagrius says that the, the good theologian is the person who prays well, and the person who prays well is the good theologian. Okay, that, that's, that's, that's true and profound and wonderful. However, in order to do theology of the kind that, that William and I do, you've got to learn some very difficult languages, first of all. You've got to learn Greek. You've got to learn Hebrew, um, Latin, inevitably French and German and Italian. So there's all of that linguistic stuff you've got to get under your belt. Then you've got to have the history of the church before you. You've got to have philosophy before you. Now, by the time you learn all of this, you're about 120, (laughs) and you're dead. So (laughs) um, all of which, at some stage in learning all of this, you actually realize grammatically in theological grammar that God is absolutely singular, as I said a little while back, and that there's no concept which can encapsulate God, which also means, I I should point out, because God is absolutely singular, we cannot rigorously use gendered language with respect to God because gender requires at least two. And if God is absolutely singular, there can be no, gen- no, no gender marker of God. It's purely conventional that we use male pronouns. And in fact, the Bible has, has female ones as well in, in Isaiah mm-hmm. and elsewhere. So. This is a great perplexity, and it shows us something very important. The relationship we have to God can be intellectual. That's a part of it. And it's incumbent upon those of us with, with minds to try to exercise them with respect to understanding more of God. We can never quite get there, but it's a kind of duty to do it. But God is not primarily concerned, it seems to me, with our attempts to know him. He's concerned with our attempts to love him, which he understands by way in which we comport ourselves one with another. So the in Christian terms, the coming of the kingdom is first of all a relationship with God of love, which is expressed in the love that we have for one another which is not necessarily that of friendship or storge, of family affection. It's what Jesus calls agape. It's self-sacrificial love, 
when you contract yourself, when you contract your own ego to make some kind of room for other people. And I think what the gospel is concerned with is two main words Paul gives us. Kenosis, a kind of self-contraction, and a very important word, epectasis, which means a stretching out. That Christianity is concerned with a contraction of the ego in order to stretch out into the kingdom, which is an act of love for other people with all the risks that that entails. <laughs> Another term that, uh, that is in the words that you've just uttered is tzimtzum, mm -hmm. the contraction, the self-contraction, which mm -hmm. is the, the nature of, of God's creative act, which Kevin is pointing out anyone who loves has to do, really, yes. Yes. which is suggestive in the sense that we, are, we have to be God in order to, to love God. That is, you have to be a part. You have to participate in the act of love, in the creative act of love, even that original right. Right. act. Right. Well, in, in Judeo-Christianity, one of the most important doctrines is that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. We bear the Imago Dei within us. And there's a lot of fascinating discussion as to what this image of God is. In the Middle Ages and beyond, it was thought to be reason, and especially male reason. For quite a period, people didn't think that women were made in the image of God because women were irrational. So it was thought to be reason. Now, I've always found this a rather peculiar way of arguing because the Bible is very clear about what God is. God is love. And if we're made in the image of God, that means we're made with the capacity to love one another. And it also means that we cannot contain within ourselves the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei is not something that you can hold within yourself. It's something we share one with another. So in any circumstance, including this one, the Imago Dei begins to shine and reverberate when you're with other people and talking with them and attending to them and listening to them. It's not something that we can contain simply in our minds. I think that's a beautiful reference to what you said earlier about the meaning of symbol, you know, the origins that, that it's only when we bring parts together that, right. that we cannot, you know, on our own contain or hand on, you can't hand on the faith and say, look, I've got all of this, I've, this, is, this is God here, I'll show you who God is, that it's only together and, and symbols are our way in which because they bring us us together and they, they, they help to, to move us towards wholeness, which is something we cannot do on our own. It's interesting there because I think a, a lot of people, certainly myself, would associate love with feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so to, to, to love is most inherently a feeling I have. If I say I love somebody, that is a feeling within me. Yet you were saying earlier that this doesn't revolve around feeling as such. Not primarily, Not no. Not primarily. So, so it's a, it's a, is, I suppose it's a different way of viewing a love of God rather than a, a nice warm feeling. It's a different way of viewing that relationship. Is that right? Well, we know from, from all kinds of relationships that you have to contract yourself. You cannot dominate the, the other. Mm -hmm. And very few of us like to contract mm -hmm. ourselves willingly. Mm -hmm. 
And we do that only by virtue of having the relationship. And we also know in our relationships, even our erotic relationships, that they're not consumed by feeling always, that we have ups and downs. And sometimes there are feelings which are positive, and sometimes they're ambiguous, and sometimes they're not there, and there's a dryness. And it's exactly the same in our relationship with God. God gives us a complexity in human beings, that we have minds, we have wills, and we have emotions, and he wants the whole of us, it seems to me. And so we have our mind involved in thinking about God, which pushes us further into the mystery, and we have our emotions, and we have our will, which also go there. So I think it's a mistake to base everything upon experience and to base experience wholly upon feeling. You might think of the intellectual part of this relationship to God as being the negative or the critical part that opens up a space for the infinity of God, whereas feeling gives you something concrete. We spoke of images at the beginning that is crucial for triggering a certain reaction and a, a sense of relationship to the mystery of God. But it has to go together with a, an intellectual clearing of a space and a, a willful commitment to realize the revelation of the holy or realize one's sense of being in relationship to, to God in one's relationships with with people. The important word for Jesus, I think, in the New Testament is the word neighbor. Now, in Torah, it's very clear that the Jews should treat as their neighbors only fellow Jews. Now, when Jesus tells the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most beloved stories in Christianity, often people don't know that the lawyer who puts the question to him, who is my neighbor, he knows the answer already from Torah. It's a fellow Jew. And Jesus tells the story about a Samaritan hated by the Jews, despised minority among the Jews, who helps someone who's been beaten up and left for dead. Now notice what he does, the Samaritan. He cleans the wound, he puts the guy on his, on his animal, takes him to a hotel, pays for a couple of days for him to be looked after, and then goes on his business. There's no talk in that parable of him befriending the man. There's no talk of feelings there. He's not acting coldly by any stretch of the imagination. But he goes off and does his business. Now, who is the neighbor there? Jesus asks the lawyer. And the lawyer's got no, no alternative but to say it was, it was the one who helped him. He won't even say the word Samaritan. So Jesus radically changes the meaning of the word neighbor. And in that radical change, he gives us an idea of what the kind of love he asks of us is. There's a dimension of universality in, in this love. Right, right. Which also is a kind of imperative for us. And you know, we've been talking about relationships in singularities, but 
There is also this dimension of the, the universal that is very much a part of the spirit of Christianity as well, to reach out to all as, as neighbor. The, the, the universal, to my mind, is also a, a dimension of the, when we say the unsayable, we are, are opening this experience, which has been described in terms of intimacy with God, we're opening it also to an unrestricted dimension of relationship to every other, not only the one who has reached you with a feeling of love, but an embrace, really, of, of all others, the other but every other. And I think that when you're talking about universality there, um, that brings in that idea of contraction of the self too, has to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Because all the identity markers that you might like to cling on to that will shore up who you are and, and say, this is, this is the place that I'm staking my claim of, of, of building myself is through identity markers. And yet Jesus comes along and, and, and starts to bust open all of those identity markers and the tribalisms that we would have clung right. on to. Right. The most intimate core of your own self, of my own self, is, is not marked by identity. Any of the identity markers, gender, ethnic, or even our, our individual distinctions, whatever they are, they're shared by certain other individuals. What is only us, what is uniquely and singularly us, has no marker. It is universal. It's what we share in common, paradoxically. It's really without anything that distinguishes us from others that we, we come to our, ourselves, um, our, our core yes. selves. And that's, this is why I invoke the, the universal, really. Yeah. I mean, if we think of modernity, modernity could be understood as offering us a wide range of choices for what is central to human being, like reason, the will, the unconscious, and so on and so forth. Now, the, the Judeo-Christian answer to this is what is most central in the self is paradoxically not in the self at all. It's what right. marks the self. It's the imago Dei, the image of God, which if that is the imago Trinitatis for Christians, it's not within, it's shared, it's social, it's something we participate in. And this is what is so much deeper than the mind, reason, the unconsciousness, gender, uh, ethnicity, all of these things, which are merely ways, in, well, they're important socially, of course, but um, they're not going to give you that access to self. The access to self comes paradoxically by leaving the self. In another vocabulary, one would speak of the Buddha self, mm -hmm. right? So that, um, you know, when I say that, <laughs> There's a spirit of universality in, in Christianity that is intended really to be an embrace of, of other religions and, and even of the irreligious. You know, athe atheism has uh, an essential part in the conversation as well, and it's essential even to our experience of coming to what we might name God, but that's together with those that that, that, that are very much in this experience of not being able to name God. Yes, that is, that is crucial to the encounter that we're, 
we're speaking of. And even before we name it, I think we want to open ourselves to that encounter in fellowship with those who know no God and are, are, are not, not even convinced that it's, that it's possible. I think, um, as often would be the case, I think, I think the God that most non-believers, I suppose, to use that term, would reject is also a, a concept of God. And I realize there that I've used the word concept of God, but is a concept of God that I imagine all of us would also reject. It's mm-hmm. a very maybe um, Zeus-like uh, yes. idea of, a, of God. So um, <laughs> this is almost the first question I asked to an extent, but coming back to it in a way and realizing how just how impossible it is a question to ask. I'm going to ask it anyway, and I'll start with you, William. Um, what do you mean when you use the word God? Well, I, you know, I have been using that word here, um, but I don't have a definite meaning in mind. And any concept of God is, is not adequate and, in fact, is to be, I think, relinquished. Even saying God seems to individuate an item, and there's something that's not quite right about that. God is inconceivable to me except as more than any of my conceptions. I'm curious, if you had one piece of wisdom to pass on to somebody early in a faith journey, early in the life journey, dealing with the mysteries and the, I mean, I know you have so much, uh, such a wealth of experience in um, both theology and, and literature and culture. What, what wisdom would you pass on? Is there something you'd be able to say? I think in, in one sentence, I would quote Anselm. That's to say, faith is in quest of understanding. The Christian faith isn't given to us all at once. It takes a great deal of life. It takes everything that we have as human beings. And we will never realize all of the truths. We cut our way through darkness, trying to understand with our mind, going with our wills, and trying to feel our way in the darkness. And that takes the whole of life. To come back to another quote of yours, Kevin, you um, you said that all our lives turn endlessly around this unspeakable word that we keep trying to find other words for, and every poem that I write is in a sense trying to find adequate words for this unspeakable word around which my entire life turns. Would you say that's one of the, the main reasons you have turned to writing poetry, because perhaps it's the closest language can come to in some way being in the flow with maybe God, with the divine? I started to write poems when I was 13 years old, 50 years ago. And uh, that was about the age when I started to start thinking about religion. I went to the local Baptist church, and the two things have, have evolved side by, by, side by side. And of course, um, there's always going to be overlaps. Most of the Hebrew Bible is in poetry. The New Testament is a comparatively prosaic book, apart from the parables of Jesus and the hymn in Philippians. Um, So there's a lot of cross-fertilization that goes on. There's a sense when you're writing poetry, and maybe when you're writing theology too, but it's especially clear in writing poetry, that you feel you have one, two, or three poems to write. 
and you keep rewriting them. There's an old saying, I wish I could remember who, who said it first, that good poets keep writing two poems, great poets keep writing one poem. <laughs> um, so we're always in quest of something, that particular kind of configuration of, of thought and emotion. And each poet has, as it were, one path to it, who sees one thing. And after a few years of, of, of reading any one poet, you begin to discern what that is, it seems to me. I find it fascinating that both of you have so fully given yourselves to the intellectual life, um, more than most ever would. Um, find your way back to poetry often as, uh, you know, I, I, I would imagine the, in some ways, truest expression of all of this. Um, why, why do you think that is? Milton said that poetry is simple, sensuous and passionate. And I think that's the best short account of poetry that we have in the language. Now, if something is simple, that doesn't mean to say it doesn't have richness, it doesn't have mystery. On the contrary, the simple often is what contains richness and what contains mystery. It's an intriguing thing in modernity, especially in academic modernity, that we have gravitated around the word difficulty with regard to literature, rather than richness or mystery. So we've intellectualized that relationship with literature. Now there are certain things which are difficult. Pure mathematics is difficult. Economics is difficult. Literature has its own challenges. But the challenges in literature, in writing it and in reading it, is entering that richness and that mysteriousness and learning from it as a human being. It's not necessarily an intellectual puzzle. That can be a part of it, but it's only, I suspect, a small part of it. Some people perceive when religious people start talking about poetry and seeing things poetically, sometimes the observation is that, well, it's because they don't really believe any of it anymore. So we're not going to believe it literally. We're going to think about it poetically as if it, you know, we don't take it seriously anymore. I think it's important to contradict that and say, actually, this is the pathway into utter seriousness. Right. This is the pathway when you do take truth really seriously. And, you know, and I, I've always, you know, when I think about the time and I, I've written poems for myself but because it was always a point when I was in that place of utter seriousness when I couldn't I needed to express something that was super important mm -hmm. and looking back it's it's actually those poems that to me now read as more truthful than many of the other things that I said and wrote when I was grappling with trying to um, understand God you know try to put put words on on some sort of experience but it, it's, it's little snippets of poetry that I look back that I actually got somewhere close to what feels true now. So I think it, it's not about saying we don't believe anything, it's, it's saying that we believe it utterly. Well, I suppose we started this whole conversation um, with the theme of articulating God, talking about God and, and articulating the mystery. Um, and that can be done better sometimes in, well, not sometimes, almost always in metaphor and and poetry than, uh, than essays and, and uh, the similar things like that. So as a result of that, I thought it'd be a great idea to finish this podcast by both of you reading out some poetry, if you're happy to do that. We might start um, with you, William, and then I'd love, Kevin, for you to read out 
um, your one of my favourite poems of you, uh, yours, facing the Pacific at night. So start with you, William, if you can tell us about this one. Okay, here's a poem called The Moment. This little space of time in the foyer of the tower where I reside during my eight-month sojourn in Hong Kong with Christmas music on the intercom playing in endless rounds, the same tape, and emotions in the air untethered while I decide whether to go or to do or just to continue to meditate freely. This moment, so unbounded it seems, is the same as the moment in which death will come, or the moment of adieu to my lover in teary mists at the airport, the decisive moment when what has been will never be again. So innocent, unsuspecting, relaxed, this very moment is nevertheless the sword that divides past from future with a severing act for eternity beyond repeal. This free and open, inconsequential moment for me is also the last, when the axe falls or poison is injected into the veins at execution. This moment, as a moment of time, is no different. It is equally exact and strict, unforgiving, never to be redeemed, or changed from whatever it cannot be now. And yet, now, even now, it is the moment of realization of the peace that surpasses understanding. Shanti, Tagata, Amen, Amen. Beautiful. Kevin, Thanks this is a Facing the Pacific at Night. Can you tell us a bit about when you wrote this one? Yes, I can remember, actually. Uh, I wrote this poem in Geelong um, when I was teaching at the Geelong College. Uh, I would have been 29 or 30. Mm -hmm. So this is about 30, 32, 33 years ago. And it appeared in my book, Peniel, uh, and it's been in every selected poems I've done since then. So this is set in Australia. Driving east in the darkness between two stars or between two thoughts. You meet the greatest ocean, that cold expanse the rain can never net. And driving east, you are a child again. The web of names is brushed aside from things. The ocean's name is quietly washed away, revealing the thing itself, an energy, an elemental life flashing in starlight. No word can shrink it down to fit the mind. It is already there, between two thoughts. The darkness in which you travel and arrive. The nameless one, the surname of all things. The ocean slowly rocks from side to side. A child itself, asleep in its bed of rocks. No parent there to wake it from a dream to draw the ancient gods between the stars. You stand upon the cliff, no longer cold, and you are weightless, back before the thrust 
and rush of birth when beards of blood are grown, or outside time as though you had just died to birth and death, no name to hide behind, no name to splay the world and burn it whole. The ocean quietly moves within your ear and flashes in your eyes. The silent place outside the world we know is here and now between two thoughts, a child that does not grow, a silence undressing words, a nameless love. And you wrote that before 30. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Well, I'm going to feel inadequate for the next week. That's <laughs> that's an outstanding way uh, to finish um, the podcast, I think. Thank you so much for your Thank time, you. Kevin and William. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, and we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.